The last days of the kingdom of Judah. The last days of the kingdom of Judah. We're going to be looking as we work our way through this topic and try to derive some lessons that we can from the final days of the kingdom of Judah. We're going to be looking in several different portions of Scripture. We're going to be uh, touching base primarily Jeremiah chapters 36 through 39. But if you would like summaries of these days, the last days of the kingdom of Judah, you can look in 2 Kings 23 through 25, or perhaps you might find 2 Chronicles 35 and 36. You might find those chapters of value. <clears throat> I think it goes without saying that all of us want to derive lessons and insight from the stories of the Bible. A famous historian from Yale, George Santayana, once said famously or almost infamously, legendary now, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. As an axiom, that is sort of right. It really needs a corollary, though. Because if it was really true and simple and that easy to understand, then of course human beings would learn from history and we would not repeat the same mistakes, which we typically, almost universally, do. And in fact, in our own lives, we would like to think that on a personal level, we learn from our own personal histories or the histories of those around us. But of course, most of us don't do as well in that area as we could and as we ought. And that, of course, is because we need an added corollary to that famous statement. We need something to the effect that that history repeats itself, but never in quite the same way. There are always permutations of the patterns, and thus it is not really easy to learn from history, either personal history or universal history of nations, because the circumstances are always a little bit different, enough different to where we say to ourselves, yes, I see that happen to them, but that won't happen to me because it's a little different. <laughs> All right. With those thoughts in mind, <clears throat> if we can perceive some of the patterns from Scripture, though, if we can look in the stories and the histories of Scripture, we might be able to discern something that is of value. So what we're going to try to do now is look at the last days of the kingdom of Judah and as we consider this, we might think about the parallels that we might derive for, that are useful for our own time. Now, we, of course, do not live in the land of Judea. We do not live, in fact, even in a small little country like little Judah. We live, in fact, in a very large country, one of the largest countries in the history of the world, one of the most powerful countries in the histories of the world. But human nature being what it is, and God's law being what it is, and the interaction of the two, and the nature of the, the world we live in being constant, there are certainly some things we can derive from the story and the tale of the last days of the kingdom of Judah. So let's see what we can derive out of this story, and then see what kind of application we can make for ourselves if, and if time permits, we'll make a little personal application and we'll make some collective application for our nation as a whole. So let's set the stage. If you want to pick up the story, we're going to begin with a king known as Josiah. Now, so it turns out that many of you have heard of Josiah. Josiah lived in the fading days of the 7th century BC. King Josiah was the last independent king of little Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been taken into captivity by the great and mighty Assyrian Empire. By the time we come to the reign of King Josiah, little Judah was alone in terms of the Israelitish kingdoms. There were other small neighbors like Moab and, and others, Ammon, but little Judah was alone in the world, shall we say, in terms of natural ethnic allies. Now, Josiah had a problem. He was a good king. That wasn't the problem. In fact, Josiah was a very good king of his little kingdom. 
He led the kingdom in a revival, a famous revival, in which the law of God had been found stashed away in some obscure, dusty corner of the temple. It had been brought out. It had been read, and Josiah said, wow, we need to do these things. And he did his very best to reestablish the law of God in his small kingdom. For this Josiah is well remembered, and he did his very best to guide his little kingdom. The problem he had was that little Judah was sandwiched between two great powers. Now the power of Assyria had been broken by another Mesopotamian city-state, and that of course was Babylon. Babylon and Assyria were very similar in many respects. They came from the same region of the world, they spoke very similar dialects, they had similar religious and cultural traditions. Both were wealthy, powerful, and cruel. They were tough, hard, cold enemies. The other worry, though, that Josiah had, besides this kingdom of Babylon that had superseded Assyria, was Egypt. On the other side of him was Egypt. Egypt also was a superpower. And it was wealthy, it was powerful, it was strong, it was mighty. But it had a different nature, it had a different cultural tradition. Assyria, Babylon on the one side, and Egypt on the other. Now the two great powers, Babylon in the, in the 7th century BC, Babylon and Egypt hated and despised each other. And both of them hoped to wipe out and smash the other. Right in between them, though, was poor little Judah and King Josiah. Now, Josiah did his very best. And one year, in 609 B.C., Assyria, under a great pharaoh named Necho, marched into the land of Judah and was going to take on Judah which would be easy, that'd be like flicking a flea off his back, and then take on his great world adversary, the Babylonians. Now, Josiah was, had a problem. <laughs> should he oppose Egypt, or should he not? He decided he would oppose Egypt, and he went out to battle, and Josiah was slain, killed in battle. And thus ends the last good and noble king of the little king of Judah. Now he had four successors who came rather rapidly. And it was only 23 years that those four successive kings after Josiah ruled in the little kingdom of Judah. And they were in a quite a plight. Their situation was every bit as bad and it grew worse by the year. Now, the four successors to King Josiah are not particularly well known, and none of them had the character or the wisdom of good King Josiah. Following his death, Josiah, when he was buried, his son Jehoahaz reigned briefly. Jehoahaz reigned a grand total of only three months. The pharaoh of Egypt, Necho, took him away and said, Judah, you are now a vassal state of Egypt. And Jehoahaz died in Egypt. Jehoahaz was replaced by his brother, another son of good King Josiah, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim managed to last about 11 years. Jehoiakim spent most of his time, or at least much of his time, as basically a lackey of Egypt. Egypt asked for a rather modest amount of tribute. But, Jeho but Jehoiakim really didn't know what to do about this, and he was still struggling with this problem. Shall I go with Egypt, or shall I go with Babylon? I could switch sides. I could rebel against Egypt and go with Babylon. Well, essentially, the choice was taken out of his hands, and Jehoiakim, during his reign of 11 years, uh, suffered the misfortune of the Babylonians rolling in. The Babylonians pushed back the Egyptians. He became a vassal now to the Babylonians. 
However, Babylon, as I indicated, was a rather cruel taskmaster, and the Babylonians demanded a great deal of tribute. The tribute and the taxation that Babylon expected was much greater. Jehoiakim wasn't very happy about this. Now I need to introduce you to another character in this tale, and that is Jeremiah. Now Jeremiah had a very long ministry. Jeremiah was alive at the time of Josiah's death, and he was, he, his ministry lasted through all the kings that followed in little Judah, the four kings that, that I'm now describing. During the reign of Jehoiakim, Josiah sent him a letter. He wrote it down, and he said, listen, I want you to look at what I've got to say, because his, uh, Jeremiah's advice essentially was, we need you as the king to make your peace with Babylon. You need to make your peace with Babylon. You need to pay that heavy taxation. And if you do so, God is going to look after our little nation. If you do so, you will have the opportunity to turn back to God like your father Josiah and lead your little nation in righteousness. Well, Jehoiakim didn't listen very well to Jeremiah. And instead of reading this letter, he got partway through it, decided he didn't like it, pulled out a little pocket knife, cut it into slices, and tossed it in the fire. It's all recorded in the book of Jeremiah, if you care to read about it. So, so much for Jeremiah's advice to King Jehoiakim. Well, Jehoiakim's end came soon enough. Babylon got tired of him goofing around with him, and... <clears throat> to make a long story short, he came to a, 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 a how should we say it, sort of a, a, an inglorious end. When Jehoiakim died, he was replaced by his son, the son of, the grandson of Josiah. His name is Jehoiachin. <laughs> It'd be nice if the names were a little easier to remember for us, but this is what we've got. Now, Jehoiachin ended up struggling with the same problem, Babylon or Egypt. He eventually decided to cast his lot with Egypt. Well, that was a great mistake. He only lasted three months, <laughs> and he soon passed from the scene. The Babylonians said, bad boy, bad boy. You're supposed to be paying taxes and tribute to us, and you didn't do it. You've been looking to Egypt. That was a mistake, so that was the end of him. He was replaced now by Zedekiah. Now, Zedekiah is a little easier to remember. For us, that's the last letter of the alphabet, and so that takes us to the last king of little Judah. Turns out that Zedekiah was also a son of Josiah, which made him an uncle to the previous king. But when Zedekiah came to the throne, he, like his immediate predecessors, had this problem. Shall I go with Babylon? Or shall I look to Egypt? Now, it's probably worth mentioning, because this is quite important. All of the kings that follow good King Josiah, every one of them, every one of them, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, were foolish and wicked men. They did not want anything to do with the law of God. They had no interest in the faith of their fathers. And for them, it was simply a question, a practical question, shall we go with Babylon or shall we go with Egypt? And throughout this period of time, there was the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah had a unique access to the royal court in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah was continuously giving them basically the same advice the whole time. His advice was rather consistent. Don't lean on Egypt. Don't look to Egypt for help. Don't go with Egypt. Yield to Babylon. Yield to them. Pay the asked for tribute. Pay those heavy taxes. Pay them what they want, and they're going to leave us alone. Now, it takes time to work through all the passages of Scripture that go into all these histories. You have to read quite a few chapters in Jeremiah. You have to look at their record in Kings and Chronicles. But you get this very consistent trend. Well, Jeremiah talked to the last king of Judah, Zedekiah. He reminded him of the oath that he had given to the king of Babylon. For indeed, when Zedekiah came to the throne, he had said to the king of Babylon, 
I will be your faithful man. I'll pay the tribute and I'll do what you say. Jeremiah continually reminded him of this and said, don't look to Egypt for help. Don't rely on Egypt. Don't look to those people down in Egypt. The Egyptians can't be trusted. They're sneaky. They're malicious. They could sell ice to an Eskimo. They're full of snake oil of all kinds. Don't trust the Egyptians. Well, during the reign of Zedekiah, he lasted again like Jehoiakim. He lasted 11 years. Turns out that during these 11 years, Jeremiah got in a little bit of trouble. In fact, we probably ought to read a little bit about this. Now, it'd be great if we could spend a lot of time in Scripture reading many, many chapters, but why don't you open up to Jeremiah chapter number 37? And we're going to just read a little bit. Probably we'll spend most of our time in the book of Jeremiah uh, this morning as we look at our Bible study. So I'd encourage you to open up your Bibles to Jeremiah 37. <clears throat> we need to know a little bit about Jeremiah and understand this man. Jeremiah, like I said, had a long ministry. He had access as a court prophet to Jerusalem. In fact, many people, scholars, believe he was actually a kind of a distant relative to the royal family, which gave him access. Jeremiah was of the sort of a aristocratic background in the little land of Judea. And so he had access to the kings that many others might not have had. Now, in the course of Jeremiah giving this consistent advice, yield to the Babylonians, yield to Nebuchadnezzar, give him that heavy tribute. We know, I know it's a lot of money. I know the taxation they're requiring of you, and the tribute is very heavy, very painful. And I know the Egyptians are giving you a better offer. The Egyptians are like, we will last for a little bit of tribute. Besides, we're going to send you horsemen and chariots. We're going to send you all kinds of help. Jeremiah, like, don't listen to the Egyptians. Yield to the Babylonians. Pay what they ask. And they'll leave us in our land. They'll leave us alone. Well, this did not make Jeremiah very popular. In fact, it landed him in jail twice. He got stuck in a dungeon twice. We ought to read about that real quick. Jeremiah 37. If we break into verse 13, some of the people in the land of little Judah said, this prophet Jeremiah is a problem. At the end of verse 13, it says, he took Jeremiah the prophet saying, thou fallest away to the Chaldeans. And Jeremiah said in verse 14, I'm not false. I fall not away to the Chaldeans, but they didn't listen to him. And so it says they put him in verse 15 into a prison. Jeremiah was entered into a dungeon in verse number 16. And there he sat many days. Well, a lot of people in the land of Judah said, hey, this guy Jeremiah is a, not a very good, good advice giver. He's an agent for the king of Babylon. He's a traitor to our little nation. We should be resisting the Babylonians. And here Jeremiah says, we're supposed to just roll over and play dead. Just roll over. Just, just give them all our gold and silver. Just give them all our tribute. Send, it all, send all that money to them. Jeremiah, but Jeremiah says, no, 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 no. You guys are misunderstanding me. Well, the aristocracy didn't like Jeremiah. All the leaders didn't like him. And Zedekiah decided he didn't particularly care for Jeremiah's advice much either. So he got let out of the first dungeon for a little while. But to make a long story short, it didn't last long. A few little time goes by. And before you know it, Jeremiah ends up in another dungeon. So the second time they cast him into the dungeon. This is described in Jeremiah 38. Now this time it was really bad. And by this time, the Babylonians are really leaning very, very heavy on Zedekiah and Jerusalem. The Babylonians are like, hey, you guys, your, your, your tribute payments are late. Our armies are coming your way. Zedekiah, you better shape up, catch up, or we're going to come into your land. We're going to surround your city. We're going to squash you like a bug. Well, as the Babylonian army came near and Zedekiah sent messages off to Egypt, are you going to come and help us? Are you going to come and help us? The Egyptians sent messages back and said, we're coming, hold on, we're on our way, we're on our way. They never came, 
They never came. Are you sure you're coming? Hurry, hurry. We're coming. We're coming. Are you sure? The Babylonians are getting close. Hurry, send some men and horses. Oh, we're, we're almost there. Well, meanwhile, Jeremiah is saying to Zedekiah, yield before it's too late. Before they smash us like a bug. Quick, humble yourself. Pay what they ask. And they'll send their armies back home again. This time they threw Jeremiah into a pit. Jeremiah was very unpopular. And this time it tells us, and if you'd like to break into the middle of our story, in verse number 6 of Jeremiah 38, it says, They took Jeremiah, cast him into the dungeon, and he was let down in the court of the prison. They let him down with cords. And in the dungeon there was no water but mire. And Jeremiah sank into the mire. This time they said, we're going to find a, the worst part of our dungeon. We're going to drop him in by a rope and let him down to the bottom, and we'll just let him see how he does. Well, it turns out there's nothing at the bottom but mud. He sank into the mud, they pulled up the rope, and there Jeremiah is. Poor guy. The Babylonians keep coming and rolling closer. They surround the city. Things are going from bad to worse. Finally, Zedekiah says, we better pull him up. So if you keep reading in the chapter, you'll describe that they sent a servant down there. They pulled poor Jeremiah up out of the muck and the mire. They had to rope him around him like a, you know, a steer stuck in a muddy pond or something and around the shoulders and yank him up out of the mud. The long and short of it is, it was just too late, though. It was too late. They had failed to listen to Jeremiah, and the end drew near. Zedekiah rebelled against his overlord, Nebuchadnezzar, the man he didn't really like at all, but he had taken an oath to support him and pay the taxes. Nebuchadnezzar came in, he destroyed the city of Jerusalem, he captured Zedekiah, he killed Zedekiah's sons, and then he put Zedekiah's eyes out. And thus, we come to the end of little Judah. Now, two of the king's daughters did survive. And this is described by another prophet in Ezekiel 17, who was contemporary, by the way. Ezekiel, the prophet, already was in captivity in Mesopotamia, along the Tigris and Euphrates River. And Ezekiel, from a distance, was watching all of this unfold back in his original homeland. And Ezekiel spoke about those two daughters. But that's not our tale for today. One of the things that's very interesting to me that I've been reflecting on, and I, I hope I'm understanding this correct and trying to discern all of this rightly, I've often thought it was interesting that Jeremiah was so consistent and so constant in his advice that between these two great pagan superpowers, he always gave advice to yield to Babylon and to never look to Egypt. Why? And, and that is something that I think puzzled many of the, his contemporaries. Why was Jeremiah so insistent that they yield to Babylon and show subservience to Babylon and do not connect with Egypt in any way, shape, or form? It's an interesting question. I think I may have something that might be of value to answer that question to help us learn something. First of all, we've got to go back to the law. If you go back to Jeremiah chapter, excuse me, that was Deuteronomy. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, way back hundreds of years before, there had been some advice, and really some uh, more than advice, we'll say some laws concerning kings in Israel. It turns out that if the Israelites were going to select a king, God had some guiding rules for kings. Rules for kings! And Deuteronomy 17 has several of them. One of which is, don't multiply gold and silver. One of which is, don't multiply horses, meaning building up a huge army. Another one is, don't have lots of wives. He really encouraged them and wanted them to be monogamous, unlike most ancient kings of that time. But here's one we need to note. Verse 16. 
a special rule for the kings in Deuteronomy 17. It says, But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt. Do not return to Egypt. Now, you will recall, I'm sure, that the Israelite nation came into existence when they exited the land of Egypt under Moses. Their nation was formed under Moses and Joshua. But Egypt, for the Israelites, was a special problem. Now, it turns out that we find that the counsel not to go back to Egypt is a piece of advice and counsel and a guiding principle for the land and the nation of Israel that was constant through time. It turns out that the Israelites had a proclivity to want to go back. And we can read about that in more than one place. For example, let's go to Numbers chapter 14. You might recall this. In Numbers chapter 14, as the children of Israel were forming their people into a nation, as they were in the wilderness, and they were forming their identity under Jehovah, they were building their unity as their own independent people, the twelve tribes of Israel. As that was happening, some people in Israel wanted to go back to Egypt. In Numbers chapter 14, it reads like this. When they ran into trouble, some of them responded by these words. Numbers 14, verse 3. Wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt. Now this particular problem that the Israelites had that was present at the time of Moses and carried forward over time seemed to be a unique challenge for the Israelites. They were always wanting to go back to Egypt, return to Egypt, connect with Egypt, be friendly with Egypt, have a warm relationship with Egypt, trust in Egypt, always going back to Egypt. And consistently we find that the men of God were like, don't do that. Don't go to Egypt. Egypt is, for us, Egypt represents great and enormous evil. Something very bad. We cannot connect, reconnect, lean upon, get cozy with Egypt. That is the worst thing we can do. And so we find Jeremiah giving this counsel consistently. Well, it turns out that we need to look a little bit further, just a little bit, into Egypt and Babylon to understand a little bit more about why God wanted Jeremiah to give this advice at this particular crucial time in their history. It turns out that Egypt represents something in the ancient world. Egypt represented prosperity. Egypt represented abundance. Egypt represented an easy lifestyle. Egypt never suffered famines. Even Egypt never had the kind of hardships that you found in the ancient world. Egypt represented wealth, abundance, comfort, an easy life. All of the things and the comforts that any person might be inclined to want. But Egypt also represented something else. The religious system of Egypt was highly seductive. It was a type of religious system that was, was, was good at, at, at bringing others in. It was a somewhat of an easy proselytizing religious system. And the Israelites were highly vulnerable to the Egyptian religious system. In fact, they were so vulnerable that when they did fall, that when they did fall into idolatry, the idolatry that they did fall into with Baal and so forth, was really a spin-off of the religious system of Egypt. In Egypt, they worshipped bulls and calves. And of course, they didn't get very far into the wilderness when Moses disappeared in the mount. 
that they decided they wanted an idol. And what was it, of course? It was a golden calf. And when they did enter into the land of Canaan, they discovered in the land of Canaan, the Canaanitish religious system was really a spin-off of the Egyptian religious system. And they were very much into bulls and calves, the same type of religious system that Egypt was, was, was really the grandfather of. So it turns out that when Jeremiah said, don't connect with Egypt, don't go back to Egypt, don't look to Egypt or lean on Egypt, just stay away from the Egyptians completely and totally, he was doing so because he believed that this was the way that the Israelites could preserve their religious faith, their religious tradition, preserve their covenant with Jehovah, preserve their own connection with Jehovah, because if they went with Egypt, they would surely be sucked right in, drawn into this cultural and religious system that Egypt offered, which was an easy one. Plus, Egypt represented prosperity and wealth and abundance, an easy life, a comfortable life. That's why the, the constant advice was, don't connect with Egypt. What we really need you to do, if you're forced into this hard spot, if you're not going to do what Josiah did, which was be constant and faithful, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to submit to Babylon. We're going to have to submit to these harsh and tough and cruel overlords from Babylon and pay their heavy taxes. And that was strange advice. It was difficult advice for the people of that day. Essentially, though, it kind of boils down to a choice like this. When these kings of Israel, these last kings of Israel, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and finally Zedekiah, basically the choice boiled down to this. With Babylon, you would have to give up your wealth, but they would let you stay in the land and keep your religion. They would let you stay in the land and keep your religion, but you're going to be poor. You're going to have to give up all your gold and your silver and your treasures. You're going to be a poor little country, but you can keep your faith with Babylon. If you go with Egypt, you can keep your wealth. You can keep most of your wealth, but you're going to give up your faith. You're going to lose your religious traditions. You're going to lose your covenant relationship with Jehovah, and you're going to be drawn into this maelstrom of idolatry to which you are so vulnerable. So we see this, that Jeremiah ends up giving this kind of advice, which is ironic, strange, unexpected. So Jeremiah comes forward now. Let's look at a few passages in Jeremiah. We'll kind of touch base them. As we kind of skip around the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is very constant in his advice. So he says in Jeremiah 27, let's start there. Jeremiah's advice describes this cruel king, Nebuchadnezzar, in kind of interesting terms. If we break into Jeremiah 27, verse number 5, Jeremiah says, look, I'm the master of the earth. Jeremiah is speaking for the voice of God now. Jehovah says, I'm, I made the earth, the man and the beast, my by great power and stretched out arm, I'm going to give to the kingdoms who I choose to give it to. And he says in verse 6, I have given all these lands into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. It's not the only place that Jeremiah calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Jeremiah 42. If we jump forward in time a little bit, in Jeremiah 42, we get the same general sense and the same message. Jeremiah 42, and let's see, I'll have to kind of move quickly here, but if we break into verse number, oh, let's say, verse number 11, it says, Be not afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Be not afraid of him saith the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. And then it goes on to describe 
how the king of Babylon is going to allow something to the children of Judah that was a little bit unexpected. It seems it seems that Jeremiah, in giving his advice to the children of Israel and speaking the voice of God, God and Jeremiah had this message. He says, listen, here are your real choices. You can save your kingdom, and you can be impoverished, and you can pay all this tribute to the king of Babylon, and he'll leave you in the land. He's going to let you keep your religious faith. But if you don't, you're going to get smashed by the king of Babylon. Your attempt to go back to Egypt will utterly fail, and you're going to get smashed. So you're going to go with Babylon either way. All right? You can go easy, or you can go hard. But Babylon's going to be your master. Nebuchadnezzar is going to take you guys down. Now, if you go easy, you're going to stay in the land. You're going to be able to keep your faith. If you go hard, here's how it's going to unfold. Nebuchadnezzar is going to take the best and brightest of you, the merchants, the aristocracy, the leaders, all the bigwigs of your little country. He's going to haul them off to Babylon. Haul them off to the city of Babylon. They're going to be servants there. He's going to let the poor people stay in the land. Now the little poor people out in the little tiny villages and farms, they're going to stay in the land, and he's going to let those people do as they wish. However, the aristocracy, you're going to have a you're going, to have, you're going to have a problem now. When you get to the land of Babylon, you're going to have a tough time there, and you're going to be faced with a real challenge. But you see, God was in this in a unique way. God actually was using Babylon as a backup plan to bring Israel to repentance. Because Israel would not come to repentance on its own, and they would not do like good King Josiah, and the subsequent kings were very wicked and sinful, Jeremiah said, okay, we're going to have to, looks like we're going to have to do this the hard way. And the hard way is, all of your leaders are going to get into Babylon, you're going to be brought in before the king, and you're going to have a difficult choice, but God in his providence is painting you into a corner. He's intentionally painting you into a corner because God knows you very well. And he knows that when you're painted into a corner, you might actually do the right thing for probably the wrong reason. But you're going to do the right thing for maybe the wrong reason, and it's going to... This is, my, this is going to be good. Now, what's the, what's the wrong reason? What could I possibly mean by that? Well, let me just call your attention to something here regarding God's backup plan. The Israelites have a peculiar character quality that seems to be constant among our people. It's mentioned famously back in the days of Moses. Let me read for you Exodus 32, verse 9. Exodus 32, verse 9. You might recognize these words. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. It's not the only place that Israel is characterized as being uniquely stiff-necked. If we go to 2 Chronicles, here's another famous moment in time when Israel is called stiff-necked. 2 Chronicles 30 and verse number 8, it goes like this. Now, be ye not stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord. In fact, the quality of being stiff-necked and uniquely stubborn carries out on throughout the history of Israel. And even in the New Testament, guess what? In Acts chapter 7, verse 5, we have the famous speech given by Stephen. And Stephen has this to say in Acts 7, 51. Stephen says to the people standing around him, the Israelites of his generation, he said... Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, do you always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did? So do you. It turns out that God was going to use 
this particular stiff-necked character of the Israelites, which was normally the Israelites reserved to disobey God, God was going to use it in a way, when they got over here to Babylon and were paying into this corner, He was going to use it in a way that actually worked to their favor. Now, you can read about this a little bit if you go to the book of Daniel. And to tell you a little bit more about the Babylonians and understand a little something about how history does kind of sort of repeat itself in general sense, you need to understand something about the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the absolute king of a kingdom that we would today we would describe it as a personality cult. We would describe it a little bit like we describe North Korea or the way we describe the old Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin, in which there's a giant portrait of the great leader on the wall, and everyone gives obeisance to the great leader, Comrade Stalin, or Kim, whatever his name is, over there in North Korea. That was what Nebuchadnezzar was like. And you might famously remember this story of a giant statue that Nebuchadnezzar prepared and told everybody to bow down. What was the statue of? Scholars almost universally agree that that statue was a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now, Israelites being what they were, when they arrived in Babylon... And they were put in this tight spot where they were supposed to worship this great leader. What did they do? Well, three of them said, no way. Now, I'm willing to give those three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the benefit of the doubt and say they did it for the right reason. But you know what? It turns out that the Israelites were inspired by that when they arrived in Babylon and a revival among the Israelites in Babylon broke out. And we can put it to you this way. We could say it something like this. It turns out that the Israelites in this coercive society The Israelites, let's see if I can find this here. It'd be be correct to say the Israelites would never do willingly what they would choose to do when it was demanded of them. That is to say, their stubbornness was used in their favor. Their stubbornness became the agent by which this new pathway began to unfold. So ironically, Nebuchadnezzar, this exceptionally cruel and wicked king of Babylon, was God's servant that ended up helping the Israelites preserve their faith in the land of Babylon and laid the foundation for their return to reestablish the kingdom of Judah 70 years later. Now, one of the great lessons we can perceive from this story is this. The Israelites, when faced with this choice between Babylon and Egypt, always wanted to fall back to Egypt. That is to say that they always wanted to choose their wealth. They had this tendency to think about that as the primary force in their lives. The hope of an easy life, keeping their wealth, that was their choice. Now I'm going to try to spend a few minutes on a national application and a national parallel for our people in our nation. But before we do, I'd like to take a couple of minutes and look at maybe a couple personal applications. Now, as we look about at some personal applications, I want you to consider, I'm going to shift gears now, and look at three people. I want you to think about the last king of Judah that was a good king, Josiah. I want you to think about the last king at the very end, King Zedekiah. And I want you to think about the great prophet, Jeremiah. 
Now, the last king of Josiah, we learned at the beginning of our discussion, Josiah did the right thing. He died prematurely in battle. What can we learn from Josiah, though, and his life? Well, first off, we can say this. Josiah gained a clear conscience before God. He gained a clear conscience. Now, after Josiah was gone, things did not go well. His sons did not choose well. But you know, that was not Josiah's fault. You are not accountable for the choices that other people make. But you are accountable for the choices that you make. And you're certainly not accountable for the choices that other people make after you're gone. Josiah got a great reward, though. If you look at 2 Chronicles 35, 26, it tells us very plainly that Josiah gained a lasting reputation. To this very day, Josiah is numbered among the few great and good noble kings of Israel and Judah. Josiah is remembered for that. So one of the things we can learn in this story from Josiah is that your lasting reputation will matter. And whether or not you, your life ends quickly, or you live long, or it turns out the way you hoped, the choices you make now will be with your family and your friends and all the people that follow you to the end of time. You've only got one chance to build a good reputation. And you can't resurrect it after you're gone. If you want a good reputation, do it right. You've got to do it right now. You've got to do it through the right thing. Now, Zedekiah. Now, Zedekiah chose very badly. One of the things that Zedekiah failed in was decision-making. And I mean this. Josiah vacillated. He vacillated back and forth with Jeremiah, threw him in jail, pulled him out, threw him in jail, pulled him out, thought about listening to his advice, but in the end he didn't. Vacillation back and forth rarely yields anything but trouble. Make up your mind and stick to it. If time permits, you might be able to take your time in making up your mind. Sometimes you don't have to be in great haste, but when you choose... Stick with it. Stick to it. Vacillation does nothing but confuse all of the people around you, as it did all of Jeremiah's followers, his army, his commanders, the nobility, his advisors. They were confused by this man's inability to choose a course and stick with it. Secondly, of course, he failed to listen to the good advice he was given. He was overcome by greed and pride. He wanted to keep the treasures of Jerusalem. And Egypt had said, your tribute will be light. And in his own greed and pride, he was pushed the wrong direction. He chose wealth over godliness. He chose wealth over godliness. Now, not all of us will have to make that choice. Abraham was a man of wealth. Wealth isn't necessarily the problem. But it can be a problem, and it not infrequently is a stumbling block to many of us. Never choose wealth over godliness. What can we learn from Jeremiah? You know, Jeremiah was a faithful and persistent man. We can learn that persistence over time reveals a pathway through the trouble that you are having that you might not see immediately. Many of us are faced with challenges of life in which we have a problem and we don't see our way forward. But if we are constant and persistent, a pathway will emerge. And that's Jeremiah. And in the case of Jeremiah... His entire ministry during this collapse of this kingdom was being aimed at yet a final event, which was saving 
the dynasty of David, which is an entire another story, which takes us to the two daughters of Zedekiah. But Jeremiah had his own challenges, his own personal problems, and he had to be persistent to the course that was given him, and constant, steady, predictable. Jeremiah was constant and predictable. Turns out that constancy in your life is going to build for you loyal friendships. You ought to strive to be predictable. You say, well, predictable is boring. <laughs> that kind of boring is good boring. <laughs> Predictability is good. You ought to be predictable. People ought to be able to say, this man is constant. This lady, I know what she's going to do. It's going to build loyal friendships. Inconstancy, unpredictability, that'll get you friendships, but they won't be lasting friendships. They're only going to be friends of convenience, and they're going to be your friends and chums for temporary advantage. All right, let's shift gears with the last 12 or 14 minutes that we've got here. <clears throat> let's look at our own country for a little bit. I spent quite a bit of time building the context for Judah, the collapse of Judah in its last days with the final four or five kings, ending with Zedekiah. And now Judah ultimately was faced with this very unpleasant choice. And in the last decades of the kingdom, Judah consistently, under the leadership of these final kings, looked to Egypt, contrary to God's law, contrary to the advice of the prophet that was risen, God brought forth. But they looked to Egypt because they were choosing their wealth. They were choosing their easy life. They were choosing a life of an abundance they thought that this would bring them the security and the happiness they wanted. And instead, it brought catastrophe. And they were warned that it would, but they didn't believe. Now, the United States of America is kind of a unique country. We're a country that has far more natural resources than any other country in the world, really. We have more coal and oil and iron ore and great farmland than any country in the world. We can easily take care of ourselves. We can survive somewhat isolated in a way that most nations in the world cannot do. The great abundance of our natural resources has made us wealthy. In fact, we are a very materialistic society. Not all nations are as materialistic as we are. Many nations have other values that rise up to compete with their things that they really treasure, but not here. We are very much like our ancestors in that we choose and want abundance. We want the easy lifestyle. We want that which we can gain financially. We think in terms of finance. We think in terms of economics. And most of our choices are driven by economic realities above all other things. We willingly choose to move far away for a better job. Most countries in the world, their citizens don't make choices like that the way we do. And we've been doing it for several generations. A number of generations, even our forefathers, that might have been a weak spot. Go west, young man. Get free land. Build a great life. End your life with great assets. It's, it's been a weakness, and it flows out of this reality that we have the, an, an abundance of natural assets, and we have opportunities economically that other people around the world don't have. You know, I think God is going to challenge us in this area more than any other. You know, I'd like to read something for you. <clears throat> I think that one day... And this will not surprise you. But I think one day, the United States is going to be faced with a great economic catastrophe. Well, this has been predicted for a long time. I think it one day will come. It will come one day because of the, well, basically, it's a, it's a matter of uh, the, the fiat currency that we utilize. 
The national debt stands at about $28 billion. But there's something different about the national debt now than in past times. Well, what's different? Well, let me read for you what one expert has to say just in this area as we think about economics for just a few moments. Federal debt is now greater than national gross domestic product. This threshold was crossed in the year 2019, just before the COVID panic began. Since then, the situation has only grown more dire. What this means is the national government will never pay off the debt. It is essentially impossible. Indeed, paying the interest to service the debt is getting more difficult as interest rates rise. Second, there is a new economic theory that has gone mainstream that drives all of this. It's called modern monetary theory. Modern monetary theory teaches that endless fiat money is not a problem, and it never has been. Governments should be free to create all the fiat money they want, be completely unencumbered about the matter. According to this theory, a day of accountability will never come for governments that act in this matter. Thus, economic advocates of MMT literally believe that the governments do not have to find a way to pay for the goods and services they distribute. There really is a free lunch if you're the government. Now, our national economic system is a little different than most of the other parts of the nations around the world in that, for now, the United States dollar is still the reserve currency, meaning it's still what people look to around the world. And that's about the only thing that keeps it propped up a little longer than otherwise. Other nations can't get away with what we can. But you know, if something can't go on forever, eventually it will stop. And this cannot go on forever. Now, many of us are very much aware of the inflation that we're experiencing all around us. This is a result of modern monetary theory being put into application. And we're probably, many experts believe that hyperinflation is not far away. Now, hyperinflation just means crazy inflation. Crazy inflation. Now, I don't have time to go into this. I just finished a book written by a fellow named Peter Zihan. It says, the end of the world is just the beginning. There's a lot in this book that I don't really agree with. But there's some interesting features of his discussion of geography and economics. The subtitle is helpful, though. The subtitle is Mapping the Collapse of Globalization. And in it, he articulates the idea that our world is about to change. He just published this about a year ago. And it's going to steadily, uh, globalization is going to come unraveled. And everybody in the world is going to live in a different way. But what's that mean for you and I? What's that mean for us? It's bad news in many respects. In terms of money, it's bad news for everybody. Nobody's going to be better off. Money-wise, what's it mean money-wise and economically for you? And what's it mean for our country in terms of our lifestyle? Well, <clears throat> these are some of the things that are, that are predicted, and I think they're reasonable. So I'm going to throw them out for you as we wind down here. Number one, government's going to continue to seek unprecedented control. But because of their financial problems, they're not going to achieve it. The United States' future is going to be a lot like Brazil or Mexico. If we're lucky, it'll be like Brazil. If we're not, it'll be like Mexico. The border will be moving northward. Not in a you know, with, with uh, uh, not officially, but in terms, the United States is going to turn into a nation much like Mexico. What does that mean? Well, here's some of the things it means. It means law enforcement is going to become very spotty. There's going to be parts of this nation that there is no law enforcement anymore. And it's going to grow. It won't just be East St. Louis or Detroit. It's going to spread. Cartels will steadily replace legitimate law and order. 
Housing is going to grow more expensive and scarce. Transportation will become more costly. Roads will be crowded and poorly kept. Electricity is going to be expensive, very expensive. In some areas, so expensive and so scarce that rolling blackouts may occur. Depends where you live, though. Food, of course, will become more expensive. Medical services will get too expensive to properly fund. That's a little scary if you're a person who needs to go to the hospital and doctors a lot. Water and sewage infrastructure will suffer and become unreliable. All this is going to unfold over a period of, of several years. Remember, the collapse of little Judah took about 23 years. I don't know if we're on a 23-year time schedule or something similar to that, and I don't know if it's already, the clock is already running if we are. But all of these are reasonable and a little frightening aspects of the possible future ahead of us. Now, there's something that most people don't think about if water and sewage infrastructure suffers in parts of the country. It's going to bring back diseases. Typhoid and cholera in warm parts of our nation. Places that have long, warm summers will see typhoid and cholera come back. Something that was feared in the 1800s, but is just a distant memory now, isn't it? In short, the United States would be like a second world country, perhaps like Mexico. Now, other countries may have it worse, but I'm not too worried about Belize or Botswana. That's their problem. I'm concerned about my land. But I will close with this. It turns out, and I want to leave you with this, there is something positive about all of this. There is something positive. Even a secularist like this guy, who has no qualms in declaring himself to be a complete secularist, there's some good things that are going to come out of this. It's not all bad news for you and I. It's a little bit like how the children of Judah, when they were cornered in Babylon, and they were finally said, you must worship this statue, they said, that's too much. <laughs> no way. No way. Absolutely no way. And they said, we're going to go back to the faith of our fathers. And we're going to knuckle down... We're going to live here for 70 years. We're going to plant our gardens. We're going to get married. We're going to obey the law of God. And we're going to look forward to the day when we get to go back to the land of Judah and live the way we're supposed to. Our people are going to do something very similar. I believe that if the passing of time unfolds and the, Jesus does not return, there's some positives. Let me run through them very quickly. An entire generation is going to be born that does not remember this world of abundance but also they will not remember the shallow frivolity, moral debauchery, and slothfulness. There will be children born, they may not even be born yet, but there will be children born that don't remember all the stupidity and foolishness that we have to put up with right now. People will be forced to work hard like they haven't worked in generations. We will be compelled, compelled to work long and hard just to keep the wolf from the door, so to speak. That's going to have some positives. Local communities are going to be revitalized because we're going to have to defend our meager resources, our assets. And the old spirit of self-reliance is going to resurface. One good thing, one of the best things is this. The most natural of all social structures is going to have a revival. Men who work hard, really hard, are going to become a premium. Which means feminism will wither, marriage will prosper, and unnatural sins like sodomy are going to fizzle and fade away. Best of all, there's going to be a returning to the Bible and to Jesus Christ. Now that, I'm 
laying out that happy scenario only at the end of a long and difficult period. And I think it's very plausible that this is all predicated on the assumption that as the years and decades click on by, Jesus Christ has not returned and established His kingdom in the earth. That might happen. If that does happen, I guess I don't need to worry about anything. If Jesus comes tomorrow, I don't need to worry about a thing. But if He doesn't, and He tarries, we'd better be thinking ahead. And if that tarrying lasts, we'd better be thinking ahead more than just a few days or a few weeks or a few months. We need to be thinking years ahead. So I think there are things we can draw from their experience of our ancestors. And I think we have hope that God will not abandon us. And what appears to be really harsh and crushing judgment, well, it really is harsh and crushing judgment, but there's a purpose that God has in that. God also has promised to preserve a remnant. It's our duty and our aspiration to be a part of that remnant. And that's what we can do when we think in the terms and the lessons of learning from our forefathers. Well, thank you for your time. God bless you.